You got 90% of the American public out there with little or no net worth. I create nothing. We make the rules, pal. The news, war, peace, famine, upheaval, the price of a paper clip. We picked that rabbit out of the hat while everybody's just out there wondering how the hell we did it. You're not naive enough to think we're living in a democracy, are you, buddy? It's a free market. You're part of it. You got that killer instinct. <laughs> Stick around, pal. I still got a lot to teach you. Hey, buddy, are you with me? I need to know if you're with me. What can I do for you, Rod? You just tell me what can I do for you. It's a very personal, very important thing. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Show you the money. Oh, no, no, you can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you with me then, brother. Hey, I got Bob Sugar on the other line. I better hear you say it. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Show you the money. Not, not show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah. Louder. Show me the money. That's it, brother, but you got I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. Congratulations, you're still my agent. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. By adding a little something to this month's sales contest, as you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is set of steak. Third prize is you're fired. Because only one thing counts in this life. Get them to sign on the line which is dotted. A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. You want to work here, close. What's up, everybody? It's your host, Dylan Conroy, and we've got another episode of Digital Rainmaker for you today. We're going to be interviewing Jonathan Simpson Bint, this chief revenue officer of Twitch. So hope you enjoy the show. All right. So first one is easy. Um, how'd you get started in the industry? <laughs> Well, it's 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 a good uh, it's a good question, and actually, I have I have a good Genesis story, which is that basically I was working as a bouncer in a pub in London because the pub I was working at belief was that having a guy on the door only caused trouble. So so what they did was they had me and a girl on the door. So I was the guy, she was the girl, and during the day, the girl that I was working with on the door of this pub. She worked for Saatchi and Saatchi as a media buyer. And I used to basically talk people out of coming into the bar. And, you know, we never had any sort of physical altercations. I used to basically calm people down by talking to them and chatting to them. And we'd always end up shaking hands or whatever, you know. And she said to me one day, you know what? You'd be really good in space sales. That was how she put it. You'd be really good at selling space. And I... <laughs> In my mind, at that moment, I had a picture of, some, of a real estate sign on the moon. That's literally what I thought she meant. I thought they're selling space. She explained to me that, no, 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 that's not what she means. But she explained to me that, you know, there's this job, which is advertising sales. You know, she said, how do you think all those ads get into newspapers and magazines? And I basically said, well, I hadn't really thought about that. She said, well... I know someone I'd love to introduce you to because you would be really good at it. A few weeks later, I started doing some interviews. She introduced me to some people and I ended up doing some interviews. And lo and behold, I got a job at a company called Haymarket selling advertising space on a magazine called Marketing, which was a weekly trade magazine. And that was, that was how it started. That's how I basically got into, I got into the business almost by accident. 
partly because of the good graces of a, a girl called Helen Tamick who worked at Saatchi's. Uh, I've heard so many stories of people that had no background in media and just fell into it. I was very much the same, just happened to know that a guy who was in the right position at the right time and he thought I would be good at it. Right, there you go, exactly. It's, I think it's really a really similar experience for a lot of people. On the sales side, nobody really goes to college thinking, hey, I want to get into sales. Sales becomes attractive to people when they get out of college because partly because they realize their options perhaps aren't as wide and varied as they believed or hoped. Sales teams have a lot of fun. There's a lot of good stuff going on. You can get to work on some really innovative products. So sales becomes quite seductive to a lot of people, I think. And of course, there's the money. Salespeople can earn relatively good money at a, at a young age. So that appeals to people too. What is the X factor that you look for in a sales guy? You know, I, I found that when hiring, if I look at just the resume, a lot of times it's about like a 20% success rate. But if I focus less on the resume and more on what I call the X factor of a particular candidate, just that feeling that he would be good at good at the job. How much do you pay attention to that kind of gut feeling on someone or more about the resume when you're making hiring decisions? That's, that's, that's a really good question because I think as I've gotten older, I focus more and more on the X factor and less and less on the resume. And, and that's very possibly because of experience. You know, in an organization like Twitch, it's quite interesting. We have quite a strict code for interviewing people. You know, there's certain questions we need to ask, certain areas we need to explore. I find a lot of that, I mean, I do it, <clears throat> but I find some of it quite tiresome. So I can, I can actually tell very, very quickly whether somebody is the right person for my team or not. Of course, you know, want to be very, I want to be respectful to people, so I'll, I'll go through the motions, work a lot on that X factor. And what that X factor is, I don't, I don't necessarily know what it is. It's a sort of likableness, warmth, like somebody to have a sense of humor. I want to believe that they've got a really good work ethic. It's a whole bunch of things, but yes, definitely an X factor. Give me some of the highlights on your resume as you climb the ladder to the CRO of Twitch. I don't have to go through everything, but what would you say are maybe the three pivotal jobs where you built the foundation to where you are today? So I worked in London until till 93 and then came to the US in 93. To a large degree, I think my career only really, be, for me, it became really interesting once I got to the US. Though I had a lot of fun and did some good, cool things in, in the UK, uh, which enabled me to be chosen to come out uh, to the US. I, I sort of think of all of that as almost, it's almost preamble. What I, when I very first came to the US, I was working with Chris Anderson, who now owns the TED conference, and we had basically started a small pub, well, Chris had acquired a very small games magazine publishing company called GP Publications. They were based in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I got sent out to start a sales office here on the West Coast. For me, that was the beginning of everything. That was sort of like where I really had the chance to build something and build it from scratch. Chris. Uh, was in tax exile at the time. So I sort of had to build this company on the West Coast, had to hire a completely new sales team and hire production people and started hiring editors and artists and so on. It was just an awesome experience. It was, it was just fantastic. It was really, I, I was loving being in America. I was, I was really enjoying Americans. I really liked the positivity of Americans and the sort of the very natural optimism that I think is sort of 
or at least at that point was very inherent in sort of young Americans. So I, I absolutely loved that building the, the very first sort of footprint for, for a company that was called Imagine Media. In about 1996, we launched the Imagine Games Network, which was IGN. That was a fantastic experience. And that really came from a, literally a 20 minute conversation with Chris. You know, hey, we should, we should really be launching single format uh, video game sites on the web because it's so cheap to do. We, we were, as uh, magazine publishers, we were big believers in single format magazines, single format magazines being magazines dedicated to a single platform like, you know, a Nintendo magazine, a Sega magazine or a, a PlayStation magazine. I read that your uh, conversation with Doug Perry in 1996 was basically the birth of IGN, that you pitched him on an idea about an right. internet division and that was the birth of IGN. Oh, that's exactly what happens. And so Doug Perry was working on Next Generation magazine at the time. We had a guy in the mailroom named Adam Douglas who persuaded Doug to work on the Nintendo magazine, Adam to or Nintendo website, Adam to work on I think the Sega website, and a guy called Jeff Chen, Sony website. And that was the Imagine Games Network. The network was because there was three sites, so we called it the network. And that was IGN. That was how IGN was born. And that was a fantastic experience. The internet was, was just beginning to become a big thing. And we had one of the biggest sites on the internet. I mean, IGN was, was massive in no time at all. The original webmaster was a guy called Eric Marcoulier, who's gone on to do all kinds of great things. But IGN was literally being run on a couple of Apple servers that were under his desk. And at the time, we were like the sort of 16th biggest website on the web. It was incredible, absolutely amazing. I had also read that, you know, the gaming industry was one of the first industries to really embrace online marketing before a lot of the other categories came in. So it seems like with everything you've done and being an early pioneer on the web and advertising, the gaming industry was a perfect place for you to be as far as having advertisers come and join you there. It was total luck because the thing was, was that, that gamers had the wherewithal to get on the web because they all had PCs, they were sort of, you know, reasonably tech savvy. So gamers were massive early adopters. What was it? Netscape and Yahoo and all that stuff in the, in the very beginning. And that gave us this massive head start. So we were unbelievably lucky. You, you'd notice actually that in ever talking about my, my career, my history, I, I use the word luck a lot because that is one, one thing that I'm always very, very aware of is that above all, I've been lucky. I've been very, very fortunate in terms of people I've worked with, timing, play, being in the right place, that kind of thing. And I do think that plays a massive part in, in anybody's career these days. Yeah, 100%. There's only uh, so many opportunities to bat a home run, right? Right, exactly, absolutely. And then when you're trying to bat the home run, you've got to hope that the wind's in your favor, you know, that sort of the air's right, that the pitch is the right pitch. I mean, it's a, a lot of things go into making any product successful. And likewise, the same things happen when you're trying to make a career for yourself. Luck is a massively important part of it. So on the topic of luck, you were up there in the Bay Area during probably one of the most tumultuous times in history during the mid to late 90s during the bubble. You know, I was still in college then, but I've got friends who are older than me that have told me about massive fortunes that were amassed on paper 
only to watch them evaporate very quickly over a six-month uh, kind of holding, cooling off period of uh, IPOs. Give any kind of wild ups and downs uh, from that 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 bubble period up there? Sadly, I did. Uh, and though I say this with, with no regrets at all, no regrets. But yes, we did two IPOs during that that crazy period. IGN went, but we spun IGN out, and IGN was um, part of an IPO. That the holding company was called Snowball, and and that that did an IPO. And then Future, uh, uh, Imagine Media had become Future by then. We were owned by a British company, which was a British company Chris Anderson had, had founded back in the 80s. We went public with them too. And yeah, there was a brief shining moment there where we were all sort of like, oh my God, you know, look, 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 at, the, look at these amazing figures that are, uh, you know, on these little crawls along the bottom of my monitor. You know, we all had these little Yahoo crawls going at the bottom of that or at the bottom of our monitors. And there was a brief shining moment there where sort of everybody's dreams were going to come true and we were all going to have islands in the sun kind of thing. It literally evaporated in the space of several weeks. It was hard work. It was definitely hard work. And fortunately, I don't know too many people who sort of ended up in debt or or ended up in sort of awful, awful situations because fortunately, and this this is luck again to some degree, I suppose, it all happened so fast that most people never got hold of the money that they had on paper because of, you know, holding periods and, and lockout periods and whatnot. Actually, I know I only know of one story where somebody ended up in a terrible amount of debt with the IRS and had to borrow money to get out of a relative, had to sort of like remortgage their house to help, help that person get out of it. Most people did okay. Anybody who was working at a future, uh, I mean, there was just so, you know, Excite, Yahoo, there were so many people who just at least a couple of weeks where they thought they were set for life and then very quickly discovered they weren't. <laughs> yeah, it must have been a wild time. It was, it was. And what was it, what was it like for you as an observer of that? Were you, were you aware that fortunes were being made and lost? college student, you know, sitting in the fraternity house at UC Santa Barbara, you know, we were pretty oblivious to what was going on outside of the world, Um, you know, met a lot of people who, you know, were maybe a little bit older than I was and have told me, you know, everybody kind of had an experience like that if they were up there doing these types of things in the early days, right? Yeah, a lot lot of people had, a lot of people were wrapped up, caught up in it. I, I remember, I think Wired did a, maybe it was, I can't remember who it was. Somebody did a cover. Once the bubble had burst and a couple of weeks had passed, somebody did a magazine cover, which sort of, which said something like, okay, everybody, back to the crummy job. That was kind of the way it was, you know, it was kind of, okay, everyone, back to, back to nine to five, back to like just being regular people. So I think, I think, I, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure I'm sort of uh, glossing it slightly, but you know, it was all just an experience, part of the part of the rich tapestry of life. Who are some of your important mentors that you've had throughout your career? I've been really fortunate in having mentors, and I would say having great mentors is is a really, really important thing for people trying to build a career. And a mentor, just just to be clear, you know, the way I view a mentor, a mentor isn't necessarily someone who sits down with you and says, I'm your mentor and so on. And you don't even necessarily spend a heap of one-on-one time with a really good mentor. For me, mentors have been people who I've just, on occasions, I've just watched them really closely. You know, I, I've just really observed how, how they work. I, and I've sort of become aware that I'm 
saying the things that they say and that I'm sort of adopting their style. It's a really good thing to be able to sort of look at people around you and sort of think, okay, I can learn, I can learn from these people. Really key mentors for me, there was a guy in London called Steve Mills who was a recruiter who basically lent me a suit, shirt and tie and a pair of shoes for my first job interview, first sales job interviews. And Steve was, Steve was just a, an amazing guy. The first grown up to sort of see something in me or, or treat me like an adult also, like an equal. Steve was absolutely amazing. Later on, I definitely got mentored by Chris Anderson. Chris Anderson was, the, was a fantastic mentor. Greg Ingham, who ran Future after, after Chris left Future. Greg Ingham was, was a fantastic mentor. And then also at Twitch, you know, um, Emmett Shear, who's the, the founder at, at Twitch, is a really, really positive example and a, a really good sort of unspoken mentor in lots of ways because there's, I've worked with very few people who I've admired as much as Emmett or respected as much as Emmett. So, you know, I, I watch Emmett really closely usually really admire his drive, his attention to detail, his ability to cross-reference multiple things and sort of understand the business and, and challenge people. Those have, been, those have been my mentors, keenly aware of the fact that they've all been awesome, all of them. At the beginning of the interview, we both talked about our uh, our little girls. Uh, I, you have a 12-year-old daughter. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old daughter. I've seen that you've been a part of a lot of companies that have had a work really hard culture from what I've read, you know, probably putting in long hours. I also read a quote from you on your LinkedIn where you would quote, fly hundreds and hundreds and thousands of miles to meet personally to sell to some of your biggest advertisers. How do you maintain work-life balance and your responsibilities as a dad in the, the position that you have at Twitch? I've got my head in my hands here, literally. <laughs> It's been a, it's been a, it's been a massive challenge all of my working life. My eldest is 20. I have a son in college who's 20, daughter in, who's a senior at high school who's 18, and then I have a 12 year old. When we were building IGN and Future, and then when I very first started at Twitch and was traveling like a crazy person, they were all young. I, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, I, I have regrets about that because I've got like 2 million miles with United and like a million miles with Southwest or some, I mean, just crazy air miles. It's really hard. I've never been away for more than like sort of 10 days at a time. That's always been a, a rule. And for a long time, it was seven days, but then I used to have to go to the UK for a couple of weeks or more or less a couple of weeks. My wife actually has been brilliant. We try and do things like every time, whenever I'm in town, whenever I'm at home, we eat dinner as a family. So some weeks I'm at home all week and, and you know, we eat dinner as a family all week. We eat dinner as a family on a Sunday. In fact, I always cook. I always cook on a Sunday. Spend a lot of time with the kids at weekends. I coach soccer. At times, it was quite challenging with my schedule to do a couple of practices during the week and then a game on Saturday. I coached all my kids at soccer. It's really hard. I mean, you just kind of. I don't think there's a fix. I don't think there's a an easy way to be a sort of travelling salesman, which is sort of you know what I, what I've been over the years. You just have to like sort of make somehow force yourself to leave the office at three o'clock and go and take a soccer practice sometimes or get home really late on a Sunday night because knowing you're leaving for New York the next morning at 7am so you've got to get up at 4.30 you're going to get home at midnight because you went to a soccer tournament in Santa Rosa or LA or whatever you just have to like be bloody minded about it and and make sure that you spend time with with your kids you know really hard no no question it's really really difficult 
sounds like you're doing a good job there though I don't know about that. I, I think I think I've probably done an, an okay to average job, but I, I honestly think it's really really difficult to do a brilliant job. I think doing a brilliant job is really really hard work. No, I agree. It's uh, provide that uh, quality of life for your kids and allow them to achieve even more than you did. The time spent is also something that's important. So yeah, it's a, probably my biggest struggle too is over committing to the job and really trying to figure out how to prioritize those things. So I think it's something we all deal with. Totally agree. I think, and, and I think it's also very, I think it's a very personal thing too. I think depends on, for me, I've been really fortunate. My wife's been awesome and has really sort of, you know, picked up the slack and covered for me many, many times. Been really good about sort of telling me when I'm overworking and under under delivering at home, you know. So I think that those those kind of things, I think it, it just really matters. But it's, I think it's it's different for everybody. For me, it was actually it's actually you know I really like my kids and I, I like my kids and I like their friends and I like their friends' parents. So that that made it a bit that definitely made it easier to be around because actually I enjoyed being around. I have met people and I have known people who've not enjoyed being around, not enjoyed it so much, and so sort of for them it's been easier to go off and do the work, but. It wasn't like when I was with my kids, I was thinking about work. I actually was pretty lucky in that I really did enjoy being with my kids. Yeah, no, that's important. Are you a gamer yourself? And how how important is it that your sales guys are hardcore gamers in your category? So I've been making my, my living in the games business for 25 years. And I basically play FIFA and racing games. <laughs> and I will play some platformers, I suppose. I'm actually a big Sonic fan. And I can't wait to get my hands on the new Mario game because I, I loved Mario 64. In fact, we, until very recently, we had Mario 64 set up in our house because we loved it so much. Although I would take the Mario Kart out and put in Mario cartridge out and put in Wave Racer on the N64. So I love I love Wave Racer. Again, it's because it's a racing game. So for me, it hasn't been it hasn't been that important. And it hasn't been that important for a lot of people I know in the industry. But what is important is that you understand the importance of games and the significance of games. And I've definitely always understood, definitely have always understood that games were right from the very beginning, the early 90s when I joined Future, I totally got that games were this big thing. You know, there was this this sort of, uh, this whole world, sort of un- underground world where People were spending enormous amounts of time and money and, and attention and so on. With my teams, I don't require that people are hardcore gamers, but I always like to know that they know, they understand what games are and that they understand the significance of games. The question is, do they get games? And as long as they get games, then they, they're, they're in. Pretty much everybody on our team, a lot of people would fit, fit my own description. They're, they're people who... They don't consider themselves gamers, but they do spend eight to ten, eight to twelve hours a month playing games because they play with friends or they play Madden or you know whatever. I always get uh, sucked into like one of those Clash of Clans or Final Fantasy games or something like that every once in a while. I wouldn't consider myself hardcore, but I feel well, like uh, you know be on a spectrum and still really enjoy them. Absolutely, and it's. It's sort of an invisible. It's sort of an invisible presence. One of one of the reasons games are so popular at the moment is that it's so easy to just dip in and out. And, and games are, you know, we used to always games are bigger than music or games are bigger than movies and so on. Nowadays, we just talk to people about how games are just part of the social fabric. I mean, they're they're just there, and you you end up playing a game when you're sort of 
paying your American Express bill these days, gamified. People people play games on their phones, whatever. So it's we used to go to ad agencies years ago. We'd go to an ad agency and we in New York and we would say, okay, who here we have a big group of people, we'd say, who here plays games? Nobody would put their hand up. And nowadays, of course, we go and we ask the same question. Everybody in the room puts their hand up, regardless of age, regardless of any sort of demographic consideration. Everybody plays games of some sort. It's really about whether you consider yourself a gamer or not. No, that makes sense. I think I read somewhere that 80% of millennials are involved in playing games in some way or some form of another. So obviously with generation it's more like you said just a part of life it's just one of those multiple sources of content that you can engage with absolutely we've touched on this a little bit on you know the x-factor component of hiring but um, outside of you know just that gut feeling how, how do you approach hiring as far as finding qualified candidates how do you then retain great talent Good question. In terms of hiring, at Twitch, we have a very sophisticated sort of recruiting process, big recruiting teams. We have lots of recruiters. Whereas in the old days, it used to be sort of me doing the calling and, and other, you know, my, my team sort of the managers on my team doing the calling and going through resumes and so on. Life's made a lot easier for us now. We have teams of recruiters. You know, I, we have a job. We take the job to the recruiting team. The recruiting team sort of interview us to find out what it is that we're looking for. They then go out into the world and, and sort of scour LinkedIn and post ads and look through the Twitch database, which is you know, Twitch has got this huge database of um, applicants. And then, then they come back to us with a, a whole bunch of people, almost an invisible process until it gets, we start interviewing people. When we interview people, we, you know, that, that becomes a, a Twitch via Amazon, really. It becomes quite a uh, scientific process and we have big interview rounds if we're hiring someone onto the twitch sales team they'll generally meet with anything between five and ten people wow. yeah i mean it's a big sort of screening round and then everybody writes their reports and gives them scores and so on and then if the hiring manager wants to hire that person that's actually when i'll speak to them i'll generally do a last pass on anyone we're about to make an offer to. I pretty much trust that the managers, the manager knows what he or she's doing and this is this is a good good hire. And a big part of the reason I speak to the, the candidate at that point is it's kind of a courtesy thing. It's sort of so that I know who they are and when I bump into them somewhere in, in, in the organization, I actually have some, some sort of common ground to chat to them and, and be welcoming to them. It's, it's a long process, definitely. It can take it can take a little while and candidate can find themselves coming back sort of seven or eight times. It, it <laughs> can be quite grueling. I often begin my, my, if I'm talking to someone, I often begin by apologizing for, for what we've put them through. You know? Once you record a, re- recruit a great salesperson into the org, how do you group that person and keep them around and uh, keep them from looking for greener pastures? It's, it's really difficult. It's a very, very competitive market. Part of it is we build a great relationship with the, with the, with our team. You know, they're part of a team and we work really hard to make sure people feel appreciated and that they feel like they've got all the tools that they need to succeed. One of the number one things you ever hear salespeople complain about is that they complain that the organization they work for is not setting them up for success. We work really hard to try and make sure that sellers within the Twitch sales org, wherever they are in the world, that they're set up to succeed. 
that they've got all the materials they need, that they've got the support from HQ, that they've got the people around them to help them succeed. And that the product is, is a great product to go and sell. And there's no question Twitch is an amazing product to go and sell. So that, that I find is the sort of, that's the number one way of keeping people happy. Make sure that they feel appreciated, make sure that they have all the tools that they need and make sure that they completely feel set up for success. That, that's, if you can do that, then salespeople will stick around. Failing on those three things, that's when, in my experience, that's when salespeople, there are the weird things that happen where a salesperson gets a chance to double their income or whatever, you know, and you can't do anything about that and that, that person will leave. But for the most part, if you've got those three things taken care of, in my experience, the, the salespeople will be happy and they'll stick around. What's the killer app at Twitch for sales? Kind of your uh, your sales enablement tech stack, if you will, you know, C- CRM, email tracking, or any other technology that you guys use? Interestingly, we don't we don't have because we're, we're a relatively small sales org. We're we're about ninety people, something like that, globally right now. So we use Salesforce, but we don't use it particularly cleverly. We you know, there's lots of Salesforce sort of you know, we we had a big meeting with Salesforce a couple of weeks ago, and they they you know, we're telling us of all the ways that we're, we're not currently getting the most out of the, the platform. There's no killer app for us that's sort of enabling us to contact people or keep track of people. Our, the Twitch killer app is really, it's all about engagement. The killer app is the product itself. We're able to go into the market and our sort of elevator pitch is really good. We have a really good elevator pitch. It's all about engagement. It's really powerful. I read another quote from you in Ad Exchanger where you said, in a way, you guys act as consultants to brands to help them develop something authentic and participatory. How important at Twitch are custom programs and what are some of the favorites that you've worked on? You've, you've done some good research there, Dylan. Thank you. I appreciate that. The custom solutions are a really important part of uh, what we do. Um, to give you a, an example of that, the very first player that I made when we when we decided we were going to set up an internal sales team at Twitch four years ago, the very first hire that we made was a head of custom solutions. That guy built a team and that team still stands today. Probably somewhere north of 70% of everything we do, every dollar we sell, every deal we do, has some sort of custom elements involved in it where we create influencer programs, tournaments, uh, custom commercials, all sorts of amazing things that we do for clients. They're buying that execution and they're buying the media that then supports it and and amplifies it. That's the meat of what we do. The the greater part of what we do is actually where we're working with brands to take their message, if you like, take what it is they're trying to say and kind of translate it into a language that the Twitch community will respond to. And the Twitch community doesn't want to be hit over the head. They don't want to have something sort of flashed at them incessantly. What they want brands to do, what works on Twitch, is when brands come and participate in Twitch or facilitate something within the community, make something happen that the community can enjoy, the community can participate in. That's when it works. And, and brands on their own can't do that or, or they can't they can't fully do that. And so we help them do that. That's, that's a big part of what we do. You essentially have an internal agency that helps structure the offering for the client. 
Yes, exactly. That's really cool. So you touched on influencers um, in your last conversation, which is my business. You know, Twitch is obviously heavily partnered with both publishers, which I'm guessing at least own the content influencers who help drive the audience to the platform in addition to the people that just visit Twitch every day on their own. Um, How do the economics work for publishers? that are being streamed? Is there is there any revenue that goes to them? And then uh, how do the economics work for the influencers, if you're, if you're able to talk about that? How do the economics work for the publishers who are being streamed? Do you mean if, like, there's a Ubisoft game being broadcast, being streamed? Yeah. So if a Ubisoft game is being broadcast, does Ubisoft participate in that ad revenue in any way, the way that, say, on YouTube, if an organization, if somebody posts a video with, copyright that is owned by, say, Warner Brothers, there are mechanisms to monetize that content. So, okay, so yes, so on Twitch, the game companies don't participate in the revenue when their games are being broadcast, but the broadcasters do. And it's sort of one of the one of the magic, there's several sort of magic aspects to Twitch. One of the magic aspects is the fact that partner broad partner broadcasters share in the ad revenue. The ad revenue is pretty considerable and so it's right for millions upon millions of dollars that go out to to broadcasters every month and that's awesome we get huge amount of pleasure from that when we work with broadcasters on advertising programs influencer programs and so on they get paid also for that broadcasters can get paid for that and it it varies wildly depending on sort of what they're doing and and who they're working with and you know sort of the size of the campaign and so on but there's definitely i would say there's lucrative opportunities there for really good broadcasters who are media friendly who are prepared to do interesting things when we first started doing doing this lots of lots of people were sort of would say oh my god you know this is this going to be horrible the broadcaster's going to sell out it's going to look horrible they're going to alienate their audience we strive really really hard to make sure that doesn't happen you know the word authenticity gets used to death these days in the media world. We were using it a long time ago at Twitch. We work really hard to try and make sure that if our broadcasters are involved with a brand and are doing something for that brand, that it's authentic. It's something that the broadcaster, typically it will be something that the broadcaster has wanted to do for ages, but hasn't necessarily had the resources to do it or hasn't been able to afford to do it. You know, we're aware of this. We're, we're aware that the broadcaster wants to do something really cool, like they want to drive across the country or, you know, they want to do something. We then basically talk a brand. A brand comes to us and says, hey, we want to do something amazing. And we say, well, actually, we've got this broadcaster who wants to do this amazing thing. Why don't you underwrite it? Why don't you be the ones that make it happen? And the really smart brands go with that. And they sort of, they get that underwriting something facilitating something is really cool so it works out for every it works out for everybody in that in those sort of examples i'm very happy to say that we haven't and i'm touching wood here in the four years that we've been doing this we haven't had a, a horrible experience we, we haven't had a terrible experience where there's been terrible backlash against a broadcaster or a brand we, we've been we've been very fortunate things have generally worked that's awesome it sounds like you guys really know your audience I think we do. I think we do know the audience pretty well. I think I think we do within Twitch. I think the audience is pretty well known. You know, I was at TwitchCon a couple of weeks ago. Actually, maybe even just last week, I was at TwitchCon. TwitchCon is never a surprise to me. 
it's always a delight. It's always sort of like, yeah, that we, we definitely have a good feel for who our audience is and what matters to them, for sure. Obviously, Twitch is known for gaming. Um, when I was doing some research on the site last night, uh, one of the first ads I saw was for Old Spice. How much of your revenue is endemic in the gaming category versus uh, other categories that want to be associated with the gaming audience? Originally, we were 100% gaming. All of our early advertisers were gaming advertisers and maybe a few little bits of non-endemic snuck in. But now gaming actually represents a much smaller, way less than 50%, a much smaller slice of our, of our revenue. We built a really strong team in New York um, to work with non-endemic agencies and, and non-endemic brands. And they've done an amazing job for us. And so, you know, we, we now have relationships with Procter & Gamble and Unilever and Kellogg's and McDonald's and Starbucks and, you know, you name it, that Nike, Adidas, all these huge brands, part of the Twitch universe now. And it's extraordinary. I mean, you, met, you mentioned Old Spice. Old Spice were actually very much early adopters of Twitch. They and their, their agency in Portland, Wyden & Kennedy, who I think do largely sort of experiential stuff for them out of um, Portland, what was it now, two years ago, they did Nature Man, which to this day is, is sort of one of Twitch's most famous ad campaigns where we had a guy go and live in the woods and he was controlled by the community. They told him what to do through chat. You know, they, they built this whole massive set that out in the wild, sort of uh, east of LA, this guy, to tell you the exact way it happened, they had this idea to put this guy out in the woods and have the audience control him. And we said, well, that's a great idea, but if you're going to do that, you need to gamify it. And they sort of said, what do you mean? He said, well, let's have him go on a quest. And the quest should include lots of video game tropes. So maybe he could be trying to rescue a princess and maybe there can be a baddie and who's trying to stop him. And, and maybe he has to solve puzzles. That was like a, just a great example of where we were able to sort of take, take the original idea, which was a really good idea, but just make translate it in such a way that made it perfect for the audience and the audience loved it they absolutely loved it and this poor guy in fact it was it was two identical twin guys nature man you know they, they had to do all kind all kinds of stuff and we, we were prepared for every eventuality we knew that they for instance kind of grossly we knew that the kids would say drink your own urine we had a big bottle of lemonade with urine right now standing by because we knew that would happen you know the audience controlled him from like eight in the morning till four in the afternoon, three days. And we had hundreds of thousands of people, concurrent viewers watching this unfold. It became a thing all over the internet, all over the media. At night, when he wasn't live broadcasting, we actually put up a sort of a placeholder in the channel, which was just a sort of 60 second loop of him in bed snoring with a little bubble popped up with him thinking, dreaming about squirrels. And at one point, we had like 30,000 people watching that, watching this 60-second loop of him snoring. Huge, huge success. And it, it was just a brilliant example of a big brand coming and just doing something you know, awesome for the community that they could be involved in. For a long time, that was, that was probably the, uh, uh, the high bar. That's awesome. So yeah, so in regards to that idea that you just mentioned that came for Old Spice, is that an idea that Wyden approaches you about and they've kind of got an idea of what they want to do and then you guys kind of help them 
custom tailor it for the Twiva standard uh, engagement package that your team is armed with that they can go in and have a proactive conversation? How, how does an idea like that come together for the most part? With that one, they, they basically, Widen Kennedy had an idea, which was that they wanted to do something with a man in the wild. They actually came and spent a day in San Francisco at our office in San Francisco. A whole bunch of people from their creative team, plus people from our custom solutions team, spent a day together. They basically said, we want to do something with a guy outdoors. We basically said, let's gamify it. Let's, let's fill it with video game tropes. Let's make it so that it feels like the audience is participating in a live video game. That was how it how it came to be. They, they had the original idea. We sort of helped them sharpen it up for the Twitch audience. It was a huge, huge success for them. We gave away a bunch of emojis and old spice emojis and so on. Those emojis are still being used today. You know, I mean, they're, they're still, six months later, they, they were still getting used hundreds of thousands of times a day. I mean, it was just such a cool, such a, a a cool execution. The brand and the agency loved it. In fact, typically Old Spice, because they go go to platforms and do cool things, they don't they don't often come back. You know, they do something cool and then they move on to the next cool thing. They've become a they're they're a regular advertiser on Twitch. They're, they're a regular partner of ours. They've, they've done other cool stuff since. Entirely down to the fact that that first thing was the first program that we did was was just a big success. So uh, you talked a little bit about your team out of New York really breaking into the endemic categories for you. How do you organize your account teams? Do you do it by territory, uh, vertical, agency or holding company? What have you seen the most success with organizing your team? You know, we're actually, we're, we're all meeting, myself and my various sales leaders, we're meeting in New York in a couple of weeks to actually look at potentially changing it because we're sort of we're getting to the size now where we, we might need to change it. But the way that we've been doing it, started the Twitch sales org, has been basically we have West Coast team, East Coast team, UK, EU teams. It's sort of done on a very sort of regional basis so that, you know, somebody's working in Chicago, somebody works in Atlanta. We have somebody who from San Francisco services Seattle. We have someone actually who lives in Austin who works sort of in part of the Midwest. So it's been done very regionally to this point, rather than by category. Some brands are now starting to spend a lot of money with us. So the, the change that we're likely to make is we're likely to sort of end up with a sort of key account structure where we would have very senior sellers who might only handle a very small number of accounts. And this seems to be the way the world's moving. I mean, lots and lots of um, sales orgs are doing this now where you, you can have a very senior seller who, let's say their client is, is Microsoft, for instance. You know, there, there are so many possibilities with Microsoft, so many points of contact. Microsoft has several agencies that, you know, it can be a virtually full-time job for one person to actually work with and get really deeply into Microsoft. I think that we're, we're probably just starting to move. To, we, we've reached the point where we're big enough that We've reached, we've reached a point where that's a direction that we're almost certain to go in now. I read in your uh, recommendation of David Barrow on LinkedIn seemed to be the strategy where you really kind of, you know, found someone with real deep roots in Microsoft and he could probably do very well for himself just sitting there in Redmond and visiting the campus every day. Yes, actually, David Barrow was, he, David Barrow actually, that was quite a long time ago, but but Dave Barrow is actually a, a sort of one of those things that happened a while ago that was a great harbinger. Dave Barrow was the guy that ran the process. When I, when I was at Future, 
we pitched the official Xbox magazine. And Dave Barrow was the guy that ran the process uh, at Microsoft. He was a Microsoft employee. And after we'd won that magazine, uh, and it was a global magazine, we, we had the rights to create, publish uh, Xbox magazines all over the world. We realized that Microsoft was just this, just this labyrinthine organization. Thought, well, we need to, we should probably put someone in Seattle who can, who can manage this, who can actually be the person that manages all our relationship with Microsoft. And actually, our immediate thought was, hey, well, Dave Barrow would be perfect for that. And so we hired, we hired the guy who had awarded us the magazine effectively. And that was Dave Barrow. And it was, it was a huge success having him literally on campus. He, he kept his, his card, his, his access card, his badge. And he just came and went on campus. He had meetings with whoever he needed to have meetings with. We were producing discs for the, for the magazine in half a dozen different languages, you know, all over the world. So Dave was able to, you know, get involved in that and drive that process directly in Redmond. So yes, that was the that was he's definitely the forebear of this kind of strategy where you 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 sort of have sellers or you have people who go very narrow but very deep into organizations. Yeah, no, I I love that approach. You know, I'm uh, my biggest client right now adobe i just pretty much follow them around the world and go to the conferences that they go to and every time i hang out with them we figure new opportunities to work together oh that's really cool so uh you know talked a little bit about hiring people from outside of the industry uh, you know one of those success stories to degree where uh, somebody took a chance on us and just thought um what's your thought about hiring people from ad agencies that haven't been sellers previously and hires usually work out Great question. We have a number of people on the Twitch team who have come from agency backgrounds. We have them, actually, we have agency people threaded throughout the Twitch org, people in ad ops and account management and sort of pre-sale, post-sale. And then we have a couple of sellers who are ex-agency people. They're good. They're really effective. You know, they understand how agencies work and how agencies think. It, it can definitely be to our advantage to have those kind of people. So they're, they're successful. Selling has changed, you know, it's not, it's not the sort of hardcore sort of, you know, people used to, there used to be this thing, dipida, dial, interrogate, piss off the client, argue, don't get the ad, ask for forgiveness or some, you know, there were all these sort of ideas of how you, the sales processes, you know, that, that those days are gone in a lot of ways because it is now such a consultative sell. And people with an agency background are really generally very, very good at doing the consultative sell because they understand what the agency and the clients are trying to achieve. They're very good at understanding what, what they're trying to do. Being able to speak at that level and, in, and use, those, use those terms, it can, can make a salesperson really successful. Going back to the Twitch side, what's the breakdown of premium members who access Twitch via the premium subscription service or Amazon Prime versus people who experience advertising? Amazon do not reveal anything about, never reveal numbers about Prime. It's just that's that's an Amazon thing. And so so we're sort of we're bound by that. But Twitch Prime has been a really big success. Such an easy, easy thing to do and such a such an easy win for people. That Twitch Prime has, has gone really, really well. It hasn't had a massive impact on the sales teams, mainly because there's enough new people coming into the funnel at any one time to sort of replenish those who are, who are taking up Twitch Prime and therefore missing out on ads. It has, it has had some impact, and we, we, monitor, we monitor that. 
super closely. Our strategy is basically Amazon believes, Twitch believes that content is fundamentally valuable and that people need to pay for fantastic co content. You need to make a contribution to it. And that contribution, if you want, you can actually pay for it, which is sort of where, where Twitch Prime or subscriptions come in. Or if you don't want to pay for it in that way, then you can pay for it by offering up a little bit of your time and your attention and, and watching some commercials. We feel really, really strongly that that's an entirely reasonable ask, that it's an entirely reasonable assumption for us to make, an entirely reasonable request for us to make. The part of the beauty of the Twitch community is because they're so, you know, the viewers are such, such huge fans of the broadcasters and they get the sort of trade-off that's going on. They get that these broadcasters are trying, many of them are trying to make a living on Twitch or at least significantly subsidize their living on Twitch. People are very, very good about the fact that they're, that they're paying in some way. They, they understand the value exchange. And we get very, we actually get very, very little in the way of complaints about it. Thing that I read, you guys are booking 90% of your your revenue directly and only 10% through programmatic or other partnerships. How have you guys been so successful in capturing uh, direct relationships with advertisers? It's been a really interesting. Uh, it's been a really interesting journey from that point of view because we realized a couple of years ago that that programmatic was going to become less and less of our business. It wasn't going to become more and more of our business. It was going to become less. And a big part of the reason for that is that we we basically sell out. You know, we, we're able, what most sales teams want to do that are working on digital products like this is you want to basically sell as much as you can directly because that's where the highest revenue is and where the best sort of campaigns are. And then what you want to do is fill in the gaps with programmatic. So many, many sites, have huge amounts of traffic and they manage to monetize directly. They manage to monetize, you know, 40, 50% of it. At Twitch, we've been really fortunate. We are basically able to monetize directly up to virtually 100% of the site through many, in, in many territories through big chunks of the year. Because we're able to do that, programmatic becomes sort of less of a, there's less programmatic fill needed. We've been very, very fortunate. But what we've actually ended up doing is we've ended up creating products. And we just launched a product called, called Twitch Plus, which specifically are there to create more programmatic inventory because, because we actually believe that there is a role for programmatic. We think programmatic serves a useful purpose that, you know, giving people more reach can be a really good thing. But the reality is that we, we sell out. Certainly in Q2 and in Q4, there are whole big chunks of time where Twitch is sold out and it's pretty much sold out via direct sales. That's amazing. Uh, congratulations on being able to achieve. Yeah, it's completely, it's, I say to the team all the time, guys, this is a once in a career occurrence. Some of my team are very young and I say to them, Guys, you're going to work for another 30 years and you'll never work in this environment again. You know, you'll, you'll never be in an environment where you were, where you were literally sold out and it's all been done directly. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. The last thing that I read about the relationship with Amazon from a data perspective, uh, you guys were still firewalling the proprietary data from Twitch and uh, Amazon. Are there plans to uh, add the holy grail of the Amazon data pipe to Twitch at some point? It's, it's tricky. 
Twitch functions, what you've got to remember is that Twitch functions at the top of the funnel. Okay, you know, you look at the classic sales funnel. Twitch is very much at the top of the funnel. We're not saying to people, we're not the thing that's making people make the choice, make the acquisition choice, make the purchase choice. We're, we're an influencer at the top of the at the top of the funnel. We're arousing people's interest. We're getting people to seek more information. That's Twitch's role in the sales funnel. Amazon, of course, functions very much lower down the funnel at the point of purchase. Um, and there are amazing stats about how much stuff offline gets bought by people who've read reviews on Amazon. You know, people, someone's thinking about buying a product from their local shop and they go and actually read the reviews on Amazon and then they go to their shop and, and local shop and make the purchase. But for the most part, Amazon is, is at the lower end of the funnel. It, it's where the purchase is being made. So there's not a lot in common if you like. And that, that's something that we, we sort of, uh, we and AMG, which is the Amazon Media Group, we both figured that out very early on. We ran some tests. That was the conclusion that we came to. That said, we are uh, doing experiments with AMG. We're conducting a really interesting experiment right now, which actually has sort of direct and, a direct and a programmatic angle to it. We will continue to do that. But as things stand, I don't think there's any, nobody's in a mad rush to sort of try and glom the things together because they are so different and they, they function in different parts of the funnel and, and everybody's kind of okay with that. It's, it, it's okay to be distinct. It's okay for, to have two sort of organizations that are both really, really good at what they do, but what they do is really different. And so they, the AMG thrive on data. It's all about data, what they, you know, they're in that sort of bottom end of the funnel, they, they can see, you know, they can really powerfully measure the impact, promotion and marketing and so on. We're at the top end, much harder to quantify, much harder to measure. And that, that's sort of where we stand at the moment. Like it's a great partnership because, you know, you have two, two ends of the funnel really well covered as far as the customer journey. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. That, and that, that's, that's the way we, that's exactly the way we look at it. Yeah, the customer, we are meeting the customer's needs at two critical parts, two, the two most critical parts of the journey. So uh, what percentage of your reps top line sales should go to travel and expenses? And how did you, how do you kind of come up with that number for kind of entertaining clients, et cetera? You know, what we do is we, we, we encourage all of our sellers to sort of see themselves as sort of the president of their own little company, you know, that, that they're doing licensing their talent to Twitch. And, and even though they're full-time employees, we, we always say to them, like, you're running your own little business here. The sellers actually give us a proposal at the beginning of each year for what they intend to do and who they intend to do it with. And we sign it off. I mean, it's not so much about the money as it's more about the quality of their ideas. And, you know, we don't just want them to go and play a load of golf with people. We want them to do memorable things and have share experiences with their clients and do things that their clients will never forget. And so our way of measuring it is much more about, you know, what, what are the ideas? What's the quality of the ideas? Uh, so it means that, that a, a seller could easily have, we could have one seller who's going to spend significantly more than the other sellers or, or the average because they've got some great ideas that they want to do. They, they figured out how to get backstage tickets at Paul McCartney or something like that. And that's going to cost more money, but we know that the clients will absolutely love it. Or there's an amazing restaurant that's just been featured in a documentary on Netflix. And we're going to 
take a bunch of clients, we're going to get a bunch of clients to watch the documentary on Netflix, and then we're going to take over that restaurant for the evening and get the chef to come and sort of do a unplugged Q&A with, with um, them. So, so it's all about the ideas. We don't really do it on a straight percentage. That's amazing. So it seems that you guys are tapping your sellers to really own their own uh, sales marketing initiatives and come up with these amazing once in a lifetime experiences rather than just the kind of custom going out to drinks and going to the Nike store and all that nonsense. Absolutely. That's, that's, and, and don't get me wrong, we do do some of the going to the Nike store and going for drinks and so on. We, we definitely do do that. We don't work to a, we don't work to a number. It's more that uh, we try to work to, to the ideas rather than the number. If a seller is bringing in $10 million, $15 million worth of revenue in a year, big, big numbers, then they, they have a fair bit of license to do some cool things with those people. What are the most important conferences that you attend as a sales org and why? We're, uh, in terms of conferences, we're sort of, we're, we're kind of bad citizens in a way. We, we don't, we don't attend a lot of conferences. We, yeah, we don't attend a lot. We speak at a lot. We go to a lot of things and we speak at a lot of things, but our, our sellers don't generally go to a, a whole lot of sort of sales conferences. Our programmatic team, our advanced media services team, they go to a lot of events and, you know, they're, they're sort of part of various organizations, both in San Francisco and LA. We do attend Ad World, or sorry, Ad Week in New York and a few of those things. But on the whole, we don't, we don't do a lot of that stuff. Yeah, and, and is that just because from the, some of the reasons we've already talked about, you know, you guys are pretty much sold out anyways, so you're not necessarily looking for new clients, you're looking to go deep with your existing accounts. It's not so much. It's not so much that because we're only we're only sold out for four or five months of the year. So we're always, you know, we're always trying to grow up. We're, we're always trying to grow our business. And every year we've got more inventory, so we need more to sort of getting to sold out situation. We need more, so we're constantly trying to we're constantly trying to grow the business. We just haven't found conferences to be that effective as ways to grow the business. I think a lot of it is that sitting here thinking about it. We, we try to have very sort of singular experiences with our clients, whether that's presentations that we give, in the, give to them in the office, whether it's entertaining things that we do together. There's just, it's just sort of, uh, we really know the value of getting really proper face, quality face time with clients. And conferences are just not a great way to do that. No, that's, uh, that's great insight. I really like that. And I think that leads a little into a, a quote that we already talked about in a context early in, earlier in the interview, but you mentioned you fly else to personally meet and sell to some of your biggest advertisers. Sounds like uh, no matter where the client is, being in the room is very important to the sales process for you. It is. It's, it's, it's hugely important. You only get, we live in an age where, when I very first started selling, you know, you did it all over the phone and then you would go and see people. Now people do it all over email. Getting on the phone is sort of a, a, a big deal, you know. But I still, I still believe, and I know my, the Twitch, Twitch's sales leadership team, we all believe that getting in the room with people, being with people is still, there's no match for it. It's, it's, it's the best way to connect with people. There's no, no question about that, that if you want to sell something to somebody, if you want to 
come up with an amazing idea, if you want to share an experience, you've got to do it in person. It's the only it's the only way to do it. And so I expect I expect all of the all of my sales leaders, I expect them to travel a lot, and they do. They all travel tons, and I, I don't travel as much as I used to, thankfully. But I still, I, you know, I was in Chicago uh, two weeks ago and was there for a couple of days, and we did half a dozen, I don't know, seven or eight meetings, and I loved it. It, it was it was awesome. I love I love talking about Twitch. I love telling the Twitch story, and um, you know, going back to you, we were talking about recruiting people. That's definitely something I, I always look for storytellers. You know, when I when I interview people, I very much want them to tell me stories. I want them to get me excited about something. I want them to make me feel like I was there, kind of thing. And so that that's how that's very very much how how I function. How I expect the teams function. We've got to get in front of people. We've got to we've got to see the whites of their eyes, and hopefully we can uh, we can get them excited about Twitch. Because if we get people excited about Twitch, that's when we win for sure. So you, as a chief revenue officer, still love getting in the room with clients and being on the ground with your team. Uh, it's my favorite thing, and I, I swear I'm not just saying that. Because I've met lots of people who do my job who it's literally the last thing they want to do is go and see clients and, and be on the ground with their team and stuff. And I, I just don't understand that. I, I'm definitely that breed and, and I'm unapologetic about it. I want to be out in the field meeting with people, talking to people. If I spend all week in the office in San Francisco, uh, when I drive home on Friday night, I never feel like I, you know, I'm always a little bit sort of melancholy that, Sort of like, well, what did I do this week? What did I achieve this week? But if I, I've been and had half a dozen meetings or been in New York or Chicago or been in the UK, whatever, been in Seattle, when I drive home, I totally know that I, I've made a contribution today. You know, I actually did worthwhile work. And that's, I know, maybe it's my working class roots. I don't know. But that's when, I, when I'm out in the field talking to clients, that's when I know that I'm doing my job. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's probably an inspiration to your team as well that you are willing to uh, come to a big meeting with them and show them that you still can do the job that they have to, you know, roll up their sleeves and do every single day. I think uh, that's really inspirational from a leadership perspective. Uh, it's nice of you to say that. I, I don't, I, yeah, I don't, I don't often think of it like that. Actually, I usually feel like I'm being a pain in the ass, you know, because I talk too much and all that, you know, like I took over their meeting. I have to apologize afterwards because I took over their meeting or whatever, you know. I, yeah, I, I love it. I love being out in the field and, you know, I love driving to the meeting and chit-chatting and catching up with the reps. And I love the relief afterwards and going and getting, you know, going and getting sandwiches. And it's just, uh, it's just awesome. It's, uh, that that life is definitely the bit of the, of the bit that I love, you know. I, I definitely love that part of it. That sounds like you're a, a real people person at your core. You like to connect with people and learn about their stories. I think that's true. I think that's definitely true that, yes, I, I, I definitely, I'm one of those people who, if I'm on my own, I'm probably not really here. And I'm only alive if there's someone to talk to. I'm probably very likely one of those people, sadly. <laughs> In 2014, it mentioned on LinkedIn that you launched a music initiative at Twitch. How, how's that going today? Is that progressing? The music initiative at Twitch has morphed all over the place. We believed that Twitch could be way bigger than it was if we were allowed, if broadcasters could come on Twitch and DJs could play music and bands could play music and 
you or I could just sit there with our guitar and broadcast us taking requests, guitar and so on. It's a lovely idea and it would be awesome, but unfortunately the music business isn't in a position where it can support that and rights issues just make it impossible. So we've been through various tortuous twists and turns over the last several years. I mean, we, we do have, there is music is on Twitch, people make music on Twitch and there are people broadcasting music, but it's very, very small scale. So we, we have some exciting things coming in the music world. I think it's probably okay to say that. There are exciting, there is exciting things afoot in the music world. So we'll, we'll wait and see. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the explosion of esports and how that is fueling your growth and you, how you guys are capturing on that or really a pivotal part of it? Yeah, I mean esports is a big part of is a big part of Twitch. There's no 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 question about that. Esports is a big part of the Twitch universe. Pretty much every major tournament, every major team broadcasts on Twitch. Definitely it's been a very symbiotic relationship because uh, many of those tournaments have become really big and have grown hugely because of their coverage on Twitch, because they're on Twitch and they, they now, you know, they can now talk to their sponsors and different people about the fact that, hey, we're going to have 2 million people coming in on Saturday afternoon or 20 million people over the weekend. Esports and, and Twitch have sort of very much scratched one another's backs, which which has been awesome. It's definitely a significant part of our business from a revenue perspective. We do lots of, we work with lots of esports teams. We sell sponsorships for esports teams. Obviously, we sell media and sponsorships around big tournaments. The only thing that's frustrating about esports is there's lots and lots of sort of crazy numbers out there about, you know, esports is a multi-billion dollar business and esports is bigger than this sport, this real sport or that real sport. A lot of that, I, I I counsel caution on that. I, I don't, from where we're sitting, esports is really big, going to be very, very big, but it's still very much the Wild West. It's, it's, there's no governing body, or, or rather there's several competing governing bodies. It's still very, very much the Wild West. It's a significant part of our business. It's a long way from being sort of the, the, meat, meat, the meat of our business. So what's next for Twitch? What, do you see, what, what are your goals in the next, say, year? Our goals for, so Twitch, we want to keep growing Twitch. It's really important to keep growing Twitch. A lot of what is going on at Twitch is, is around growth. It's around making it easier for people to spend more time on Twitch, to connect more easily with their friends, to share what they're doing, make Twitch more of a social experience. So we're doing lots and lots of sort of, that, that's what's happening on the platform. Lots and lots is happening to make Twitch a more sociable, friendlier, easier experience for people. We're going to be starting to market Twitch in a different way. Um, up until now, we've, we've never really marketed Twitch. I used to be really proud telling people that, uh, you know, we've never spent a single dollar on actual marketing, brand marketing of Twitch, and we, we haven't. But I, I, I suspect that might change. I think Twitch is now such a big business. There's so many opportunities within Twitch, so much cool stuff going on. I think that we will Twitch sort of out in the world a bit more, which I think would be a good thing. We're definitely broadening content on Twitch. There's lots of very cool announcements being made around uh, broadening content. We've got new channels starting on Twitch where people are broadcasting 24-7 sort of uh, content similar to what we did with Bob, uh, the painter, Bob, Bob, Bob. Bob Villa. Yes, Bob. 
And so we've got more of that kind of thing coming and we're going to have people We've, we've sourced we've sourced content some of its animation content some of its real life content there's going to be a lot of that sort of thing happening lots and lots of interesting little twists for broadcasters to give them more ways to make money more ways to engage their audience i've been in all the planning meetings over the last month or two and there's just i mean it, it's a head spinning amount of really cool stuff going on with Twitch, it's, we're just getting started. It's, it's really interesting. One of, one of the things that makes Twitch really exciting to me, you know, we, we, we grew, we, we launched, we grew, we were acquired by Amazon. You'd think that, that would be an end point somehow, but it really never was. It was only ever the beginning. So there's just a ton of really exciting things going on. Twitch Prime is a really big deal and it's going to continue to be a really big deal. There's lots of exciting things there. The Twitch voice product is going from strength to strength. The whole Twitch experience, the Twitch universe is just thriving. I mean, it's it's absolutely remarkable and very, very exciting. So I'm really excited. I'm more excited about 2018 than I've ever been about a year on Twitch. I mean, it's 2019 is going to be awesome. That's awesome. We'll we'll be watching closely for those announcements. So that's all we've got this time around. Please subscribe and share this with anybody who you think would be interested. And we'll be back with another episode soon. See you later.